Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5 is where we will be today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. I'll go ahead and read the passage and then open with a prayer. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to speak to us, that you have revealed these things to us, that we would know more about you, that we would know more about ourselves, that we would understand more of your grace in the gospel, how you save us apart from works, that it's all of you. Lord, we ask that this morning you would mold and shape our minds, that we would be made more like Christ because of the time we spend in your word today. We ask that you would draw us closer to you and closer to one another, that we would cherish the things that you cherish, and that we would be a more godly people because of the life-changing effects of your holy word. Lord, though I am a sinner both by nature and by choice, I ask that I would not get in the way this morning, but that you would anoint me to preach your word clearly, that your word would be clear to your people, and that we would all be built up in the faith today. Lord, we thank you for all the things that you've done and all the things you're doing now and the things that you will do in the future. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're officially 116th through 1 Corinthians. <laughs> uh, Chapter-wise, maybe not time-wise. I don't know about the time aspect of it. But we start chapter 2 this morning. And in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians... Paul, the inspired apostle, made, made an argument by contrasting the world's wisdom with God's wisdom. The ideas and strategies and thoughts of the world were contrasted with the thoughts of God, namely the gospel, because the gospel does not fit into the world's mold of what is wise or what is amazing. It is only amazing to those who have experienced it, to have uh, to those who have been converted, to those who know God's grace. So in chapter 1, Paul was making this contrast between wisdoms, the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. And in chapter 2, the first few verses here that we'll look at today, there's more of a focus on the presentation of such wisdom. Paul is going to contrast the godly presentation of wisdom versus the world's presentation of wisdom. And we're going to see the biblical mandate for all Christians here and Paul's mission as he sought to deliver the plain biblical teaching 
to the believers in Corinth, which should be our mission also, to deliver plain biblical teaching. Now, most of you know that I'm an only child, and uh, I can't help it. That's just how it is. <laughs> and uh, growing up, I, I'm thankful that I wasn't as spoiled as I could have been. I had a father who did prize discipline, uh, and so I was heavily disciplined, in my opinion, uh, by my father and wasn't as spoiled as some only children are. But one of the things where I really got to exercise some privilege as an only child is that I got to eat the things I wanted to eat, and I didn't have to eat the things that I didn't want to eat. Now, I wish that would have been different. I was quite picky growing up, as you can imagine. I didn't have my first salad until I was married. Uh, Pretty bad. And uh, one of the habits I got into, and I still do, because not, not so much because I don't like certain things, but because I like the way this particular meal tastes this way, is I order my cheeseburgers plain when I go to a restaurant, especially fast food. I like my cheeseburgers plain. And there are a lot of people who never grew up even knowing that term, that you could say plain and all they do is put cheese on it and that's it. Uh, But that was my whole life growing up, was to have plain cheeseburgers, to have those things left off that I didn't want to taste and just have the meat and cheese remain. (laughs) Well, in these first few verses here, we're going to hear from Paul talking about things that he left off when it came to his teaching, so that only certain things remained. There were things that were excluded so that only a few things could be included. And what we see, it's the title of the sermon, is that Paul wanted to deliver the plain testimony of God, the plain biblical teaching. Look what he left off in verse 1. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He didn't add these things. Wisdom, of course, is what we've been discussing in chapter 1, this worldly wisdom, the worldly thinking, the Greek philosophy. He didn't incorporate that into his message. That was left out. He dealt with that in chapter 1. But then he brings up this other aspect, superiority of speech, another element that he left out. This is the way that the content of the teaching was packaged. He didn't package his message in superiority of speech a worldly approach, especially to these Greeks in the first century, to be able to speak eloquently, to confound people who are are all standing around, to speak in such a way that everyone is just left, just twisted in their mind. It's almost like you gave them a brain freeze because of how superior your speech was. Paul didn't do that. These two things, wisdom and the superiority of speech, were two things that the Corinthians really found cool. They found entertaining. They prized these things in their culture. So, man's wisdom would say, inject those things into your presentation, right? If these are the things that the people like, well, then try to incorporate those things into your teaching because they'll like you then. Well, that wasn't Paul's approach. Paul left those things out intentionally. Wisdom and superiority of speech. But look at the things he did include. Verse 3. The two things that he did include, the first was weakness. He said, I was with you in weakness. And the second are these two words that go together, 
fear and trembling, much trembling, in fact. So he was without wisdom, without superiority of speech, but with weakness. This could mean physical weakness. Paul, as we know, endured a lot on his missionary journeys, didn't he? He went into a town, and those towns didn't exactly greet him with the key to the city or anything like that. He was often beaten, abused, thrown in prison, smacked around. Paul was weak from all of his beatings, certainly. In fact, there's evidence in the New Testament that shows that he probably had issues with his vision, that he had eyes that weren't functional in the way that most people's eyes are functional. He was there in weakness. If he doesn't have physical weakness in view here, there's certainly gospel weakness in view, that he came to them in humility, not with this fancy speech that would exalt man, but he came there as a humble man. He came there as a simple man, as someone who was not looking to build himself up or to put himself on a platform, but rather to shine all the light on Jesus Christ. He was with them in weakness, and he was also with them in fear and in much trembling. Multiple times in the Bible is this word trembling used. In fact, we see it five times in the New Testament, the word trembling. And at least three of the five times you see the word fear coupled with it, fear and trembling. When we see that phrase, it's not always a bad thing. In fact, there are many times when fear and trembling is used as a good thing. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul writes to this same church and he says, remember when you first received the Lord? He said, you received the Lord in fear and trembling. That's a good thing, right? To, to come to the point of first belief in the gospel in fear and trembling? If you come to belief in the gospel with a puffed up chest and a puffed up head, there might not actually be true belief there. But if you're in fear and in trembling, it's a sign of true humility, a sign of true faith. We also probably remember Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It should be the hallmark of our lives in that way. As Christians, we should be living our lives with fear and trembling before God. And Paul's personal experiences on his missionary journeys not only made him more fearful of God and gave him more of that spiritual fear and trembling, but he also had humanly fear. In fact, when this church in Corinth was planted, we saw a fearful Paul, that first message that was preached in this series, in Acts chapter 18. We referenced this, and we're going to get there in our Wednesday night study soon. Acts chapter 18, when that church was first planted, I want you to see what the Lord said to Paul. We'll put it up on the screen. Acts 18, and in verse 9, Paul was told by the Lord in a vision this, "'Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. When Paul came to Corinth, he was on the heels of several cities in a row that left him bruised and beaten. And he went into Corinth and he was seeing the same thing as he was going to the synagogue. And God told him in a vision, stop being afraid. And as Paul's writing here, he says, you remember when I first came to you, I was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He did not come with the things that the Corinthians prized, wisdom and superiority of speech and self-sufficiency. 
He was without those things. But not only that, he was with the things that they despised. Not only was Paul without the things they prized, he was with the things they despised. Weakness and fear and trembling. Paul was making himself small and making God big. That was his ministry. God gave this apostle the ministry of magnifying Jesus Christ and making himself smaller and smaller. That he would agree with John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. And his aim in all of this was the proclamation of the testimony of God. You see that in verse 1? What was Paul proclaiming? The testimony of God. We see elsewhere in the New Testament um, at Ephesus, when Paul in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, he's meeting with the elders at the church in Ephesus, and he says, I did not fall short, I did not cease in proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months, a year and a half. You give Paul a year and a half with one church, you think he covered a lot of bases? <laughs> I'd say so. He was covering a whole bunch of ground, proclaiming the testimony of God. And we have to remember that he was doing this with an unimpressive presence. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, the next letter he writes to this church, 2 Corinthians 10.10, he says, they say about me, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. And his speech, is it superior? No. Contemptible. Contemptible. This was the way Paul packaged the gospel when he was with the Corinthians. He packaged it unimpressively. And his speech was contemptible. Wow. The opposite of what we would think to do, right? As we would think to go out and to have an influence on the culture, we would think, well, let's meet them on common ground and let's find the things that, that they appreciate and that they uh, cherish and let's try to package what we have in that package so that way we can start with a leg up and, and they will be more interested in the message. That wasn't Paul's approach. Paul's approach was to be there in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And what we find is when this happens, the simplicity of it all, just the plain Bible teaching, the plain preaching of the gospel, the plain testimony of God, when this happens, God uses it in powerful ways. When we stop looking for ways that we can make the message powerful. And when we yield to God, who alone can make the message powerful, that's when stuff starts to happen. That's when God does the work in people's hearts, when we get out of the way. When we stop seeking to apply worldly strategy to a spiritual message. Because the spiritual message needs no worldly strategy. The message, the, the gospel itself... What does Romans 1.16 say? It is the power of God. The gospel doesn't need your power. You've got nothing to offer. You're a vessel. You're an instrument. You're the conduit as God is working His power through the gospel as the message gets out. So as we have this perspective and couple it with a godly motivation powerful things will happen. Look at Paul's motivation in verse 2, a wonderful verse, a verse worth memorizing. His motivation, I determined to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There was nothing else He wanted to know, meaning that everything else was secondary. Everything else was subservient to this one aim, this one goal, to know the Savior, Jesus Christ, and His crucifixion. And this is what Paul testified to them. That was the heart of his message, was Jesus Christ crucified, the gospel. Everything Paul taught was linked to Jesus. Because Paul came as a testifier. He came as a proclaimer. Verse 1 again, what was he doing? Was he speculating? No, he was proclaiming the truth of God, the testimony of God. He was a proclaimer, not a seeker. He was a witness, not a philosopher. And that's why the Greeks had an immediate reaction saying, well, you're different. You're not speculating with philosophy. You're actually testifying to something. Because Paul had seen the risen Christ, hadn't he? Paul had experienced Jesus. Paul had been personally converted. Paul had been personally commissioned. He wasn't out there to speculate, well, maybe Jesus is God. Let's look at some evidence for it and some evidence against it and weigh it. That wasn't Paul's approach. Paul's mission there was to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and to proclaim the crucifixion of Christ as the only means of forgiveness. His only aim was to preach the gospel and biblical truth. He was a proclaimer, not a seeker. And this perspective is essential to a church starting and growing and thriving. The only way a church can start and be on a godly trajectory is if this teaching is central. It's all about Christ and Him crucified. That it's all about the gospel and that man must decrease so that God may be exalted, lifted up, magnified among us. And this is the message that the church needs today. The world, of course, needs it, but I think the church needs it anew. The church needs to hear it again over and over, because in many ways, churches have gone wayward. Man has been lifted up. Man has been exalted. The culture has been embraced. Their methods have been embraced and brought into the church, and the gospel has been stifled. The gospel has been hidden. The light that we've been given to share with the world has been covered up, and many churches need to be rebuked for the way that they have abandoned the plain testimony of God. So the state of things as we consider the church today, particularly the church in America, there are many ways that we can see they've gone wayward. One way today, and hopefully this will only be a a thing for a short time more, is that many churches aren't meeting. Many churches have closed their doors and have given up fellowship. Now, there are lots of things going on in the world today, and there are lots of reasons why certain people do not feel comfortable being around other large groups of people right now. But let me just say this clearly. Fellowship should not stop. 
the fellowship of God's people should not stop. And churches that have come together, who have been recognized as a local group of the body of Christ, those fellowships should not cease to exist. We should continue until we see the day approaching. And there are various ways to do this. There are various ways to go about it. But we should never give up meeting and rule out meeting. But let me give you five other ways where the focus has shifted away from Christ and Him crucified. Five other avenues that churches have gone down that have taken the focus off the gospel. The first place and the one that most often comes to my mind is entertainment. Churches have become houses of entertainment where they seek to provide worldly stimulation, presumably to avoid boredom in the pews. I don't know. But they're seeking to provide the people with some sort of stimulation that'll keep them tuned in to what's going on on the stage. Many churches have become little more than theaters for the world, where people can come in and get the same thing that they get everywhere else. They don't hear anything different. They don't hear any truth. But instead, they get the same thing that they get in the streets. Music has been lifted up and exalted over preaching of the Word. It's been, it's been twisted to be something it was never meant to be. It's become the show. Movies have become a part of what's happening on the stage in churches. You'll have whole sermon series based on movies instead of on the Word of God. Celebrities and programs, all sorts of entertainment aspects that have totally distracted from the Word of God. And we see that the Word is minimized and man is maximized each and every time this takes place. When the attention is not on the Word of God, the attention is going to be on other human beings. May it never be. A second way is performance in the church. Performance. This can be tied to entertainment when people put on a show, but we see it often too in legalistic ministries, ministries that are all about giving people a law and almost encouraging people to compete with one another to see who can be the most righteous. What a distraction from the gospel. Man-made rules and, and things that we should follow based on our own opinions. It's a distraction from the cross of Christ. It's not humble faith at all but it's prideful competition in a way that God has never intended. Entertainment, performance, a third one would be social issues, trying to right all wrongs in this life through worldly methods. We can see this quite prominently in the social justice movement today. Two years ago this month, I preached a sermon series on social justice. You can find it on our website. Four messages on topics like race and money and sexuality and roles. We were really looking to grow the church uh, during that month. Um, but these issues have become prominent in many churches, and many are taking a worldly approach to these issues and compromising with secular philosophy and secular reasoning instead of pointing to the Word of God as the book that contains the answers for us in this life. Beyond that, though, we also see it in our politics. And there are some of you that if you are being truly, thoroughly honest with yourself, the idea of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris 
taking the White House terrifies you. But God is the same, no matter who's in the White House. God is sovereign, no matter who's in the White House. Our gospel's the same, no matter who's in the White House or who controls the Senate or how many Supreme Court justices there are and how liberal or conservative they are. We can't give our hearts over to politics. We can't give our hope over to America. We have to see social issues for what they are and recognize that the gospel is the same and our Savior doesn't change. And if we're going to experience discomfort, that would be good for us. If we're going to experience persecution, that would be good for us. Because you know who's in charge of giving us comfort or discomfort or persecution or freedom? It's God Himself. And He doesn't give bad gifts, does He? He gives good gifts. We can't be distracted by social issues. Fourth, self-help quips of no substance, hollow concepts that distract from biblical teaching. Little quips of worldly wisdom that last merely days. Three steps toward this, five ways to do that, ten steps to a better whatever. This all distracts from the gospel. They're pragmatic tips and tricks to help you have an easier life rather than hearing from God Himself through His Holy Word. You know what you never find in messages and churches that are structured around messages like this? You never find the word repentance. Isn't that interesting? It's always steps that you can take. It's never about stopping and turning from anything. It's always about finding a road to go down that will lead to a better result. These quips and these hollow concepts are a distraction from the gospel. And fifthly, and this one is really found in all of the previous four, we see partnership with the world as a major distraction in the church today. Partnership with the world ecumenical hand-holding, a facade of unity, saying that, you know, we're really all kind of the same. Let's all come together in the name of unity and show some solidarity, when in reality, the worldviews should be set apart as fundamentally different. It is impossible for us to hold hands with someone who has a worldview that doesn't start with the God of the Bible. We can love that person. We can be friends with that person but we can't pretend that we're unified with that person. We have fundamental differences as the starting points of our worldview that cannot be ignored. And so we see the rise of liberal theology in this. Those things that have been made plain in Scripture as the prominent, precious doctrines of the Bible, that sin exists, that God Himself came in flesh to eradicate sin through His work, in His death on the cross, that Jesus rose again and we are justified by faith alone, these prominent, clear truths in the Bible, they can become vague if we're going to prioritize ecumenicism, this idea that we should all just come together and be unified regardless of our differences. Well, those truths of the Bible, that gospel isn't a vague gospel. 
It's clear in Scripture. It's why Christians for 2,000 years have agreed on this. It's definitional to what Christianity is. And we can't pretend as though those differences are minor. Those differences are major. They're paramount. And our partnership with the world, if we seek that, will utterly, totally, completely distract from the message of the gospel and the plain testimony of God. So churches today that have gone down any of these paths or a combination of these paths or paths that I didn't even list, they need to be reproved. They need to be corrected. They need to repent. Because the basic teaching in our passage today is that worldly persuasion and spiritual power are like oil and water. The two can't mix. You can have one or you can have the other but you cannot have both together. Look at verse 4 with me. Look at what Paul says about worldly methods. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. And here's the contrast, but his message and his preaching were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Persuasive words of wisdom to Paul as written here persuasive words of wisdom rule out the possibility of genuine preaching. If you're looking to incorporate worldly persuasion into your teaching, you're ruling out the possibility of genuine teaching because genuine biblical teaching is not compromising. Genuine biblical teaching does not embrace what the culture gives and say, oh, these are great tools. We should use this to make my message more powerful. But genuine biblical teaching says, all I have is the gospel. All I have is Jesus and His Word. All I have is the testimony of God. And whether we are sitting somewhere on a dirt floor huddled around with no climate control, or whether we're sitting in a uh, multi-billion dollar facility that's just like top-notch, most beautiful thing in the world, it doesn't change. The message is the same. The focus is the same. The motivation is the same. To know Christ and Him crucified. If biblical teaching is the goal, the road paved with worldly strategy will not get us there. The two are like oil and water. But unlike oil and water, we see here in this verse that the Spirit and power are inextricably tied together. Where the Holy Spirit is, there is holy power. Where there is spiritual power, God the Spirit is there. At conversion, when a person believes, the Holy Spirit enters that person's life with power. He comes into that person's, uh, into that person, but into that person's life and regenerates, causes to be born again. I want you to see what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians We've referenced this once already in this sermon series, but the two go together so well. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul wrote to them, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we've proved to be among you for your sake. What's the power and the conviction that was demonstrated there? It was the conversion of the Thessalonians. The Word didn't come to the Thessalonians and then just like 
drop, like an object hitting a hard wall. But the Word came, and the Holy Spirit used His power to cause the Word to penetrate the Thessalonians, that they would be converted, that they would be convicted of sin and convicted of the truth that Jesus is Lord. The evidence of this power is the changed life. It's the profession of Jesus as King. And that's what was written to the Thessalonians after this verse. He says, you turned from idols to the living God. That's the evidence that the Word was with them in their lives in a powerful way. And this happens without worldly persuasion. This happens without all the helps we try to bring to the gospel to make it palatable for the world. It happens without all of those things. It's a work of God and God alone. And he gets all the credit. Some of you know the name Jonathan Edwards. He was a preacher during the Great Awakening. And his most famous sermon is the one titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now you hear that title and you think, whoa, (laughs) right? That's heavy. Uh, He wasn't going for worldly persuasion there. And he wasn't. Uh, You can buy that book and uh, they have the sermon transcribed. You can buy the book. I have it in my office. It's a little booklet. And you can read through that in a day or two. And what's amazing about the way he packaged that content is he sounded maybe a little more enthusiastic than the voice in your head when you read it. When he gave that sermon, it was told by witnesses who were there. He didn't get up and shout and jump and embellish. But when he got up there and he spoke, he was so conscious of and and so aware of this teaching in Scripture that we need to avoid worldly persuasion. That he just kind of got up and read it like this, and that there is a holy God who will crush your immortal soul if you do not repent. Just about as plain and as simple as that. Because he did not want to do anything that would seem as though he was trying to persuade people through his own methods. His conscience was very sensitive in that regard. And we always have to wrestle with this because there are no clear lines in this, is there? There are no clear lines as far as when do you cross over and start using worldly persuasion? When is it that you are just living in your culture and and using things that the culture provides, like this microphone and this building and these comfy chairs? Is this worldly persuasion? Well, we're convinced that it's not. And the best place that you can go to when trying to discern, am I trying to use my own carnal strategies or am I, do I have a godly motivation, is to question that very motivation. And look at verse 2 again with me. Is this your aim? Is this your aim to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? If that is our motivation, and God knows your heart, if your conscience is clear before God and that is your motivation, God will use you and He'll direct you and He'll guide you. But as soon as we abandon that thinking, and try to give God something to make His message more powerful. We've lost. We've lost all spiritual power. We've lost the Holy Spirit. We've lost true life change. We've lost. We need to seek after plain biblical teaching. So in a church, a church like ours, 
The preaching and teaching of the Word of God must be central to all that we do. That's why we have a pulpit, and all the chairs are facing the pulpit, and it's in the center. You know, there are a lot of churches that have given that up. And I'm not going to get into the feng shui of a room or whatever, you know. I'm not going to get into all that. But a lot can be said about churches that want to minimize the pulpit and stick it to the side to clear room for all the other stuff that takes place on the stage. We believe that the preaching and teaching of the Word of God is central. The plain biblical teaching must be central. And pulpits say something. We want ours to to show that this is our value. We value this, the Word of God. And again, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, quoting Robert Gramacki when he said, our focus is to give men not what they want, but what they need. We need to remember that in the way that we package our message and the way we deliver our message. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his great book, Preaching and Preachers, he said this, I would lay it down as being axiomatic that the pew is never to dictate to or control the pulpit. The pew is never to control the pulpit, meaning the word is the word apart from any man's opinion, including the preacher. The Word of God is the Word of God, apart from anything the culture says. And as soon as we start to make what God has said more palatable for the culture around us, the enemies of God, who are just like we were, without hope in the world, as soon as we try to make it more palatable by changing the message and by using worldly persuasion, we have lost. We have lost. Because pragmatic, worldly methods have no power. And Paul's deepest desire was that the faith of the Corinthians would rest on God alone. Look at verse 5. Why did he leave out persuasive words of wisdom? Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Think about it. If you invite a friend to a really cool and exciting Christian event, How do you know if that friend who goes on to make a profession of faith has made a true profession or was just enamored by the lights and the music and the performance and everything else that goes on with it? How do you know? How do you know if the Word of God was just barely, it just was barely sneaked in there at the end? It was all a big show and then just threw a little bit of gospel salt on it. How do you know if your friend truly even understood And we think, well, my friend's not going to want to hear it. That's right. That's what the Bible says. We don't want to hear it. But that doesn't mean we change the message. That means we rely on the Spirit of God to do the work. Because nothing that we can do will bring power to the gospel. I love the testimonies of people who just go into a little rinky-dink place that from the, world's out, from the outside, from the world standards, it just is terrible, awful. Who would ever go in there? But the power of God was in there. Charles Spurgeon has a testimony like this. He was just going along one day, traveling in England. Bad snowstorm came about, and he popped into a little church. There were just a handful of people there, but he heard the gospel. 
He believed. They weren't fancy. They didn't have all kinds of things that could capture the attention of thousands of people. They didn't have any of that. Instead, all they had was the power of God. Isn't that incredible? So in our ministry, this is the aim, plain biblical teaching. And our motivation is to know Christ and Him crucified. Let's remember this as we partake of communion together.